0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. I'm Jen White, and today we've got something special for you. We partnered with our friends at Wired to bring you the Know-It-All series, 1A and Wired's Guide to AI. We covered everything from how AI is currently used, its impact, its future, and we got into the basics. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Gadget Lab from our friends at Wired. This episode focuses on recommendation algorithms, how they work, how they're studied, and how they can be both abused and restrained. Enjoy the conversation. We'll let Gadget Lab take it from here. Mike. Lauren.
1: When was the last time that you watched something or listened to something or bought something on the internet because it popped up as recommended in your feed?
0: Uh, This morning. Really? Yeah, I opened Spotify and it alerted me that a new single from an artist that it knows that I listen to a lot had been released. So I tapped on it, listened to it.
1: Was it Lola Kirk?
0: It was not. It was Audie Oasis.
1: Oh, okay. Because I know she's your girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What about you? No, not me. I'm all about the human creation. If a friend tells me to listen to a podcast, I will listen to it. I don't often take app recommendations for podcasts. Okay, but maybe that's not totally true because I also listen to playlists recommended by Spotify.
0: Yeah. Does it enrich your life?
1: No, it makes me lazier about music, which is probably something that's offensive to you.
0: Uh, No, I mean, (laughs) I'm kind of over it, but if you want me to be offended, I can can get irrationally offended.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, that's our show, folks. I'm now seeking recommendations (laughs) for a new host, so let's get to that. All right, great. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired.
0: And I'm Michael Calori, I'm a senior editor at Wired.
1: And we're also joined this week by Jonathan Stray, who is a senior scientist at the Berkeley Center for Human Compatible AI. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey,
2: thanks. Good to be here.
1: So you research recommendation systems. Those are the different algorithms that nudge us towards certain media or news or clothes basically everything. We have all experienced recommendations, whether it's from the earliest days of Google's page ranking algorithm or Amazon's shopping recommendations or being told whatever we should watch next on Netflix. Recently, though, the power and influence of recommendations has come into sharper focus as Section 230 is officially being challenged in the Supreme Court. If you're not familiar with Section 230, we'll give a brief overview. It's part of a law passed back in the 1990s that has prevented the giant online platforms from being liable for the behavior of their users. So it's the reason why Facebook and Twitter and every other social media site doesn't get sued into oblivion every time one of their users posts something defamatory or harmful. This statute has long been controversial, and now arguments are being heard on it and recommendations are part of that. Now, Jonathan, you actually wrote the amicus brief for this Scotus case arguing that section 230 should protect the use of recommender systems. Let's back up a tiny bit first. Tell us why recommendation systems were even a part of this case.
2: Right. Okay. So gosh, this is one of the most in the weeds Scotus cases ever, but we're going to we're <laughs> going to try to sort it out for you. Okay. Okay. So the the facts of the case are actually rather sad. So the case was brought by the family of a woman who was killed in the ISIS attacks in Paris in 2015. And the um, plaintiff argued that um, YouTube supported uh, the terrorists because it allowed ISIS to recruit new members. Now, um, as this went up through the courts, they threw out most of the direct claims of support because of Section 230. Uh, Google basically argued, well, you know, you're talking about something that someone else posted, so we're not responsible for that. The only part that survived the Supreme Court is the claim that uh, YouTube used, they used the phrase targeted recommendations. The idea being that the YouTube algorithm found those people who were most likely to want to watch ISIS videos and showed those videos to them. So the idea is that this is something separate from merely hosting uh, content that someone else has said. This is some sort of um, affirmative action by the platform to uh, find people who would be most responsive to terrorist propaganda and show things to them.
0: So if, if I'm understanding the arguments correctly that the plaintiff is making, it seems to be that they're saying that when YouTube does that, it takes that proactive step of putting something in front of a user. It's actually acting like a publisher, right? And it's making a decision about what the person should be seeing. So therefore it's the same as a publisher publishing something. Is that right?
2: Oh gosh. Okay. Yes. So um, <laughs> the, the actual language of the particular piece of this law Um Gosh, I wish I had it in front of me so I could get it exactly right. But it basically says that uh, internet service providers, which is this fancy piece of language that more or less translates to websites, uh, aren't liable if they are being treated as the publisher or speaker of content provided by someone else. And so a lot of the the legal wrangling is about whether an algorithm to try to match people with things they'll want to watch is um, something that publishers do or not, and I mean, you know, clearly a sort of a, 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 a newspaper doesn't try to figure out that particular people will like particular articles, but they do try to figure out what their audience in general will want, and they make choices about prioritization and categorization. So, some of the back and forth on this case at various levels of the court system has been around: well, is this a thing that publishers do? Decide that. Um, certain people are going to be more interested in certain things. And so one of the the, the sort of parsing uh, sort of wrangles and, and, and sort of hairballs of arguments that has been happening on this case is, well, you know, is this a thing that traditional publishers did or not?
1: Right. Because, I mean, for those listening, this is a little bit inside baseball, but that's why there's a difference between what we do here at Wired. And by the way, this podcast that we're taping right now then gets published to places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which are big platforms, but why we are different from those tech platforms because we produce and publish news stories or podcasts and they pretty much host and distribute them. And would you say that's an accurate summation of the differences? Yeah,
2: that's the difference. The The legal distinction is whether the, let's say, site or app that is hosting the content made that content itself or someone else made it. And you mentioned, you know, content published by their users. It actually doesn't have to be their users. So under Section 330, uh, Spotify isn't liable for the content of a podcast uh, that they host. Unless, for example, they paid for it, right? They, they um, had some part in the creation of that content. And one of the arguments that went before the court is, well, when a platform uses an algorithm to choose what individual people see, they are creating the content in some way. And here's the thing. I'm, I'm sympathetic to this argument, actually. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's clearly some line beyond which uh sites and apps and platforms have to be liable. So if you made uh, a site that was all about let's help terrorist organizations recruit, let's find the, you know, the the best performing recruiting videos and find the audiences that are most likely to be subject to being persuaded by them and match them together. I mean, I think that should be illegal. The Now that's not what happened here. So the problem is sort of one of drawing lines and the argument that uh, we made in the brief that I joined with the center for democracy and technology and a bunch of other notable technologists is basically the way you're thinking about drawing this line. Isn't going to work. The The um, plaintiffs asked for the line to be drawn around the phrase targeted recommendations, but they don't define what a targeted recommendation is. And nobody really knows. And And if the court ruled that a targeted recommendation incurred liability, it's not really clear that you could operate a website that had any sort of personalization at all. So like if Wikipedia selects an article for you based on the language that you speak, is that targeted? Nobody really knows the answers to these questions. And that's why I joined with the side saying, don't interpret the law this way.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. You argued that it's not that the big tech platforms shouldn't ever be liable, but that you don't see a functional difference between recommending content and displaying content.
2: Right. So, uh, and, and this sort of goes back to sort of you know, offline analogy as well, right? So um there was another brief which said, okay, so if I'm a bookstore and I put a Stephen King book next to, I don't know, um, an Agatha Christie novel, what I'm saying is that the people who like Stephen King books might also like this older type of mystery book. Is that a targeted recommendation? I mean, I'm using some information about uh, a user or a customer anyway to decide what I'm going to show them next. So there's all these sort of really weird lines. And um, we we tried to argue that the court should apply a, a different standard. There's a previous case which has this language around material contribution, which is, you know, did the platform do something specifically to help the terrorists in this case? And now we we haven't really gotten to this point in the courts, but if it got to that point, I think we would find that the answer was no. In fact, YouTube was trying to remove terrorist content at the time, which leads us to the case which was heard the next day, which was called Tamna versus Twitter. And that one was, if a platform knows that terrorists are using their um, their site, are they liable for helping the terrorists, even if they're trying to remove terrorist content?
0: So the arguments in both of these cases have already been made. The court has heard them. They're not going to release a decision for months, many months. Yeah, We do know how the arguments were made by the lawyers, and we do know which questions the justices asked. So is there any way to sort of foreshadow or predict whether the rulings will be drastic, Uh, no big deal, somewhere in between? So from the
2: questions that the justices were asking uh, on the first case, the, the Gonzalez versus Google case, on Section 230 specifically, I think that they're going to try to shy away from making a broad ruling. So it was, um, I think it was Kagan who had this, this line, um, you know, we're not the nine greatest experts on the internet. She got a big laugh by the way. Yeah. Um, (laughs) and what she means by that is it was part of a discussion where she was asking, well, you know, shouldn't Congress sort this out? Uh, and I, and I think that that's honestly the answer here. And in fact, there are a bunch of proposed laws, um, in Congress right now, which would modify section two hundred and thirty in various ways. And, you know, we, we can talk about which ones of those I think make sense and which ones don't, but but I think the court would like to punt it to Congress and so is going to try to figure out a way to either dodge the question entirely, which they might do, because if you answer no on the second case, on the Tamna case, and say, well, you know, even if they're not immune under Section 230, um, they are not liable if they were trying to remove terrorist content and didn't get it all. And so that would allow them to just not rule on that case. And I think that's a reasonably likely outcome. I think they would like to find some way to do that. But who knows?
1: So Jonathan, you've been researching recommendation systems for years. And obviously, this is a space that evolves a lot. It's a relatively new area of tech. We've maybe only been experiencing these for 20 years or so. And a lot of research has been done. But recently, a new paper was published that said that some of the previous work around the extreme content on platforms like YouTube and TikTok might have been quote-unquote junk, that the methodology in this research has been problematic. Can you explain this? And also, does this mean that our worries about extreme content are all over and we can just go back to the internet being a happy place? Right. That was a hyperbolic question. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right. Okay. Well, I may have been a little hyperbolic in junk, but um, okay. So I, I'm an academic, which means I have the, the luxury of, of not needing to root for a particular side in this debate. And, you know, I can I can take, uh you know, weirdly nuanced positions around this stuff. Um, Basically, the problem is this. There's all kinds of things that could be the bad effects of social media. Right. Um, It's been linked to depression, eating disorders, polarization, radicalization, all of this stuff. The problem is it's actually pretty hard to get solid evidence for what the actual effects of these systems are. And one of the types of evidence that people have been relying on is uh, a a type of study which basically goes like this. You um, program a bot to watch, let's say if you're doing YouTube, right? You can do this on TikTok or whatever. You program a bot to watch one video on YouTube, and then you're going to get a bunch of recommendations on the side, you know, up next, and then randomly click one of those and then watch the next video and randomly click one of the recommendations from that after. So you get this, um, what they call a random walk through the space of recommendations. And what these kind of studies showed is that a a fair number of these bots, when you do this, are going to end up at sort of material that's extreme in some way. So extreme right, extreme left, you know, more more terrorist material, although the, the, the really intense terrorist material is mostly not on platforms because it's been removed. Okay. So this has been cited as evidence over the years that these systems push people to extreme views. Um, What this paper, which came out last week showed, and this is a paper called The Amplification Paradox in Recommender Systems by Ribeiro, uh, Veselovsky, and West, was that when you do a random walk like this, you overestimate the amount of extreme content that is consumed, basically because most users don't like extreme content. They don't click randomly. They click on the more extreme stuff less than randomly. So as a, an academic uh, and you know a methodologist, this is very dear to my heart. And I'm like, this way of looking at the effects doesn't work. Now, I don't think that means there isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. I think there's other kinds of evidence that suggests that we do have an issue. In particular, there's a whole bunch of work showing that more extreme content or more outrageous or more moralizing content um, or content that speaks negatively of the outgroup, whatever that may mean for you, is more likely to be clicked on and shared and so forth. And recommender algorithms look at these signals, which we normally call engagement, to decide what to show people. And so I think that's a problem. Uh, And I think there's other kinds of evidence that this is incentivizing media producers to be more extreme. So it's not that uh, everything's fine now. It's that the ways in which we have been using to assess the the effects of these systems aren't really going to tell us what we
0: want to know. So but there's a lot that we don't know about how these recommendation systems work, and I think partly or mostly to blame for this lack of knowledge is that researchers can't gain access to the algorithm's inner workings. I mean, there are obvious reasons, right? There are like intellectual property reasons why companies wouldn't want to allow anybody to see how they're making recommendations. So how can you study something that you can only really approach in the abstract?
1: Mm, This is a good question. Yeah, because we know these algorithms are black boxes, right? In many cases.
2: Yeah. I mean, so this is the solution to this problem ultimately is to allow researchers access to these systems. And in the end, we don't really know what the effects of these systems are because there's never been, let's say, a proper controlled experiment uh, about you know, comparing two different recommendation systems, right? So you could imagine like one which weighs um, whether the user will reshare something much more highly than the other one. And then you look at if, as a result, people are looking at more extreme material. Um, you can design this experiment. I and other scholars have designed such experiments, but you can't run them because you need the cooperation of the platforms. And right now, there is no way to compel the platforms to do so. And they're, they're understandably hesitant to sort of allow insiders in having said that I am actually working on a collaborative experiment with meta. And, uh, there's a, there's a, an article coming out um, in Wired, I think tomorrow on, on this experiment. So, um, uh, I guess we can link to that in the show notes. Perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah, by the time the show publishes, that article will be out.
2: There you go. Perfect. Um, but broadly speaking, you know, the experiment that many researchers would like to do uh, isn't possible yet. Um, and if, you know, the platforms have sometimes studied this stuff, like Facebook did a big study on um, social comparison on Instagram, you know, whether it's making teens unhappy by seeing a bunch of, of you know, uh, you know, really skinny girls on Instagram, that sort of thing. And we only know about it because of the Facebook papers. So even when they are asking the right questions, we don't get to see the answers. And that's a problem. Unfortunately, there's no simple way to do this because uh, one one ex-platform person I know says, well, they should just be legally required to publish the results of every experiment. It sounds really appealing, but if we did that, I think there would be an incentive not to ask the hard questions.
1: Mm-hmm. So um,
2: this is one of those those policy areas where um, it's filled with with good intentions and perverse incentives.
1: Mm -hmm. And subjective reporting would likely be problematic too, right? Like going around and asking users, monitor your own YouTube usage for a month or so and then report back whether or not you were influenced. We all believe, I think, we're not influenced and we are in subtle ways we don't even even fully understand.
2: Yeah, the the problem with, I mean, so people do that stuff um, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting and it's suggestive. And so, for example, that's how we know there's a correlation between social media use and um, uh, sort of depression, anxiety type stuff. Um, The problem is when you do that, you don't know if that's because unhappy people spend more time on social media or because spending more time on social media makes people unhappy or both. Uh, And so the only way you can really disentangle that is is by doing something like a randomized experiment. Hmm.
1: So Jonathan, one of my own personal fascinations related to this topic is digital memories. Um, I've written about this for Wired. I published a feature a couple of years ago that was about my own personal experience with the constant resurfacing of digital memories because our photo apps are now algorithmic and because targeted advertising has now put me in this kind of bucket Basically, I was I was about to get married. I was planning a wedding. I was with someone for a long time, oh, and no. uh, broke off the engagement. Um, you can read all about it on Wired.com. And you're <laughs> done reading Jonathan's latest article in Wired, and it's real shot chaser kind of thing. And um and so for years, I mean, still to this day, this week, Google Photos surfaced a memory for me of my ex with our cat, and um and for a while, I was like, I was put in the the wedding bucket, so I kept getting ads related to, to wedding content and wedding vendors, and uh, and then I think after, like, because of my age and because of that, I was then put in like the ma- like the maternity bucket for advertisers because now I get a lot of that, uh, and so you know I feel that in some way that these surfaced memories are starting to affect our human experiences or our our growth processes or our grief processes. When you think about digital memories, do you see this as another form of quote unquote recommendation? Like, how would you categorize that? And what do you think could ever be done about that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing about recommender systems, you know, it's it's very much a can't live with them, can't live without them kind of problem. Because the, the problem is, you know, before the internet, um, and I'm, I'm old enough to have grown up in this in this time period, right? So we like, get off my lawn. Um, you know, there, there was a there's a, a fairly sort of small number of media channels. And many people said, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could access all of the world's knowledge from, um, you know, over over a modem from our desktop computer, right? Um, And, uh, okay, great. So now we can mostly do that, right? We can, you know, most things that are published, I can get from my laptop. But that doesn't help me with the problem of filtering them. So we started with search engines, great, you know, essential technology, Search engines are not free from these problems. You know they also have to decide what it is that I should most show in response to any query. And also they're they're personalized because um, you know like if you type in locksmith, you don't want every locksmith in the world. you want locksmith in your city. And if I type in Python, I probably want the programming language, but other people want the snake. So you have all the same kind of like personalization problems. But search engines don't solve the problem of we don't know what we don't know. And so the classic example of that is a news recommender. If I had to type in, you know, keywords for the top stories of the day, a news recommender would be useless. So we we really do want these systems to help us deal with information overload. It, It gets tricky when you have things like, you know, show me my own personal history, right? And I've had that experience too, right? Like maybe I didn't want to see that photo of my ex, right? um, I, I guess I'm more hesitant to try to, uh, show people memories from their own life than maybe other stuff that is happening in the world. Uh, in theory, maybe, you know, if the, if the system knew about how, how you felt about your breakup, they might be able to make a better choice, but it's, it's really touchy stuff. And, um, Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe as we get sort of more fluent AIs, um, it'll, you know, just like your friends may, might know not to remind you of that. Maybe maybe the machines will as well. But
1: mm-hmm. I feel like Google should have like an I'm over it button in the way that they have an I'm feeling lucky button. Just I'm yeah, right. over it. Click. <laughs> it's been a long time. No more, but keep sending the cat.
2: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the major ways of mitigating some of these problems is to have more user control. So there's a lot of researchers, including myself, who are trying to figure out how to build better controls for these systems. Unfortunately, like privacy settings, most people don't use controls. So the defaults still have to be right.
0: So I have to admit that when recommendation systems first started showing up in things like uh, music listening or in YouTube, I was like adamantly against clicking on them. You know, I have the attitude of like, I am I am very, very knowledgeable about these things. I can curate my own experience. Thank you very much. Keep that stuff out. But over time, they've gotten so good at showing me things and the discovery options have gotten so good, particularly with music on, on Spotify, uh, if I'm going to pick one, um, that I've gotten to trust them and that I've come to rely on them to show me things that I know will be actually interesting to me so I think our trust has to evolve in some of these cases the same way that it has with like for example discovery recommendations
2: yeah you know it's funny you mentioned the Spotify recommender Um, I quite like it as well um, because it helps with music discovery although uh, you know I gotta say Shazam helps with music discovery at least as much when I walk into a cafe (laughs) and I'm like oh what is that but that's but that's why they build them, right? Like, um, think of YouTube, right? Uh, now, there are subscriptions on YouTube, but most people don't use it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and ordering every video on YouTube chronologically doesn't make any sense. So there's a sort of certain line of argument that like, well, we shouldn't have recommender algorithms. And I think when people think of that, they're thinking of Twitter or Facebook, where following people is a fundamental way you use the platform, and a chronological feed kind of makes sense. But Like a chronological feed of every news article doesn't make sense. You want something else.
1: Jonathan, I feel like we could talk about this stuff forever, but we are going to have to wrap this segment and take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll do our own human curated recommendations. (music) All right. As our guest of honor this week, you get to go first. What is your recommendation?
2: Okay. So my side hustle is political conflict, uh, <laughs> which also ties into <laughs> wow. Enders. I thought you
1: were going to say like <laughs> pickleball or something.
2: <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I'm I'm also an amateur um, aerial performer. I do aerial ropes, so that's my that's my cool side side hustle. I don't know. Um, but uh, I run a thing called the Better Conflict Bulletin, um, and that's all about how to have a better culture war. Uh, mm-hmm. BetterConflictBulletin.org, and so I read every polarization book. And my recommendation, if you want a book about polarization, read uh, Peter Coleman's The Way Out. He runs something called the Difficult Conversations Lab at Columbia University. And so he puts people in a room and asks them to talk about, you know, whatever's controversial and um, also is deeply connected with the international peacebuilding community. And so I think this is the best single book about polarization.
1: And what is it called again? The Way Out. The Way Out. By Peter Coleman. And does he have a side hustle as a marriage counselor?
2: You know, it's funny you say that um, because some of the people who work on polarization started as, as marriage therapists. That's um, uh, Braver Angels, which is an organization in this space. Their first um, group dialogue session was designed by uh, a marriage counselor.
1: That's fascinating. Have you participated in these experiments with him? Have you been in the room?
2: I have never been in. I've seen the lab. I've never been in the lab. Uh, I probably would be a bad subject because I know too much about the science that is being done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a fantastic recommendation. And wh- when did the book come out?
2: Uh, just this year, uh, or late last year, I suppose.
1: Great. It sounds like something we could all use. Mike, what's mm-hmm. your recommendation?
0: I want to recommend a book that came out uh, towards the end of last year as well. Uh, it's a book by John Raymond, the novelist, and it's a novel called Denial. Uh, It's a science fiction story. It takes place about 30 years in the future, and it deals with uh, a journalist. (laughs) So it's a book about journalism. A journalist who is trying to track down climate deniers. Uh, There was a reckoning in in this alternative future where um, we put on trial all of the executives from energy companies and made them, we punished them for the destruction that they did to the planet. Uh, so, this journalist goes to try and find some of the energy executives who uh, took off and refused to stand trial and basically uh, became refugees. So, it's an interesting book because it's like a detective story and it's a, um, a story about a journalist trying to out these uh, refugees. But also, it's a story about the future and what the near future looks like. My favorite thing about the book is that it's a science fiction story about the future that doesn't dwell on like the technological stuff. You know, Phones are still phones. Books are still books. Cars mm. are still cars. And there are some fun differences, but it doesn't really go deep on that. It really goes deep into our relationship with the climate and how people 30 years from now experience climate change. Uh, but it doesn't do it in like a scientific way. It does it in a very sort of down to earth practical way. Oh, right? interesting. Like are we're really... not all
1: living through VR headsets, that sort of thing.
0: Correct. Yeah. There are VR headsets in the book, mm-hmm. but it's not like a huge deal. It's just part of daily life. Hmm. Uh, anyway, I really love it. Denial by John Raymond.
1: We should also mention that Jonathan here used to be a journalist. Speaking oh yeah. Of journalists.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I study AI and media and conflict, uh, and I had a career in computer science and then a career in journalism. I was an editor at the Associated Press. I worked for Republika for a while. And so now I do. That's that's why I combine these interests.
1: And were you ever assigned a story where you had to hunt down, like, I don't know, the chief executive of Shell?
2: <laughs> no, I mean, that's, this is definitely a book of fiction, right? The idea that... Uh, that uh, energy executives would be prosecuted for climate change uh, i don't i don't see that happening in reality
0: it it uh in the book it uh is part of a period of social strife that they refer to as the upheaval uh-huh. uh, where basically society did in fact have enough and demand change at such a, a a a high level that this did happen so uh i don't know it's kind of optimistic i guess I guess.
2: I mean, maybe maybe that's happening now. It definitely feels like we're in a, a period of rapid cultural change. And one of the big questions I have is, how do we manage that without uh, coming out of it hating each other mm-hmm. uh, when people disagree?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all need to read that book about conflict.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> there you go. Lauren, what is your recommendation?
1: My recommendation has a couple of layers to it. But I'm going to start out with two words for you, Mike. Nutbag. Okay. Let me back up a little bit. So the first part is that you should read Matt Reynolds' story in Wired about a new way to think about food. Now, this isn't diet content. I'm not weighing in on the Ozempic arguments here, if that's how you pronounce it. The story is about how some scientists are looking to reclassify how healthy our diets are based on how much processed food we eat instead of looking at things like fat and sugar and salt. The article is great. It's been one of our most read articles on wire.com the past couple of weeks. Everyone's reading it. You should go read it. But as a result of reading this article over the past week, I've been reading labels like I never have before. I'm looking for like sneaky signs of processed food. And I drink a lot of almond milk. I, mean, I take it in my coffee every day, multiple times a day. And I happen to be looking on the back of my almond milk carton. I'm not going to say which brand. And it has, in addition to water and almonds in it, has calcium carbonate, sunflower lechitin. Lechitin. <laughs> Le Thank you. Lechitin. Sea salt. Natural flavor. Locust bean gum. Gallon or gellan gum? Uh, potassium citrate, et cetera, et cetera. So at the recommendation of Mike, I'm going to buy a nut bag. This weekend. And you use the eco nut bag. You yeah. It along to yeah me. It's, like, it's, it's like nine bucks.
0: Right. And this is this is a bag. It's a uh, sort of a muslin type cotton mm-hmm. Unbleached. bag that you use to make nut milk.
1: Right. And I'm going to start. I'm going to soak some almonds and I'm going to try making my own alm- almond milk. And we'll see how this goes.
0: I think you'll like it.
1: I think I probably will, too, if I remember to soak the almonds in advance.
0: Yes, and,
1: and there's like going to be a whole downstream conversation at some point about how much water almonds take because like nothing we do these days has zero environmental impact. Right. Um, we're gonna worry about that another day. Come back <laughs> next week to hear how the almond milk experiment went.
2: That's, that's my that's recommendation. Some, that's some seriously health core recommendation. That's that's impressive.
1: Yeah. Jonathan, I feel like you will understand this because you're you're dialing in from Berkeley. Like I'm uh-huh. becoming so San Francisco. Mike uh-huh. has me riding my bike into the office a little bit more now. Um I'm making my own nut milk. I mean it's it's happening. It's all happening
0: i'm I'm delighted <laughs> that I'm having this positive <laughs> influence on your life, Lauren.,
1: uh, do you have your own sourdough starter now? I did during the pandemic, but okay, that, did, okay. that didn't last very long. Its name was Henry. It was pretty great. Yeah. Do you have yours? Do you you still have yours?
2: No, no. I I, I have a housemate who uh, has sourdough starter, but uh, I let other people deal with the microorganisms.
1: And then do you eat the sourdough that your housemate makes?
2: Well, naturally. Of
1: course. You have to be a tester. <laughs> okay. Like, I must research this. Uh, yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Gadget Lab. This has been incredibly illuminating and really fun.
2: You're not tired of Section 230 by
1: now? No, we could probably go for another hour. We'll just we'll let our listeners go for now because they probably are tired of it. But, like, let's just keep going.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, great.
1: And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. Jonathan, tell us your handle.
2: Uh, Jonathan Stray on Twitter.
1: Great. And our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business.